Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino. In this episode, we bring you another one-team Hall of Famer, a man all of baseball, the suits, the players, teams, and fans, celebrated publicly 25 years ago this year, and who, after a strike-shortened no-world series year of 1994, boy, did we need this player more than any has been needed since Jackie Robinson. Before we get to him and his story, let me first say thanks for finding us here at Hardball. If this is your first time in, welcome, and I hope this leads to a new baseball relationship for you. If you're back for a second or third or more go-round, I appreciate you keeping this podcast in your rotation. And if there's a chance to spread the word to friends or baseball fans you know, thank you for that. If you can, please rate and review and share through your social media to spread that word. You can tweet me at at Chris Domino, and I look forward to the interaction that will come from that. For those of you who are new to Hardball, just a quick what this podcast is and why it actually exists. These are first-hand conversations that date back almost 20 years, and they were heard on Atlanta Radio Live and then put away for almost 15 years. I started to play some of them in small segments on a Saturday morning baseball show, and after saying no to doing a podcast based around them for about four years, I thought maybe it was time to just put them out as a series. I also decided I would find some people I hadn't had the chance to speak with, those episodes to come, and others like today's guest double back around and sit down with them again. I go out of my way to not talk about or even look at these as interviews. I like nothing about that word when it comes to the tone or tenor I'm hoping to achieve here. The goal is that all of us, all three of us, me, the guest, and you, get transported to the day's events and games being spoken of. And if that happens even for a minute, it's a win in my mind. Interviews won't do that. Conversations do. I had a chance to sit down with this week's guest this past week and some backstory to my relationship with Calvin Edwin Ripken Jr., Like most National League fans, you pick an American League team to root for on the side pretty early on. Mine was the Orioles, because growing up in a Met house, it was never going to be the Yankees. And as a 6- and 7- and 10-year-old, the Orioles were on my TV. Good enough to be on Saturday's Game of the Week, great enough to be in the World Series in October. That matters because the players become known. The baseball cards become more valuable in your collection. Fast forward another decade or so, and that side team interest then included the 1982 Rookie of the Year, the 1983 MVP, and watching an Orioles team beat the Phillies in the World Series, a World Series we will talk about to open this conversation. I used to drive down to Memorial Stadium. I did it a few times in the 80s. Went back to see a series in 1991 before it shut down, and I was also there on opening day for Camden. First game played, an exhibition game versus the Mets in April of 1992. We will talk about Camden Yards and Memorial Stadium as well today. 
Like my relationship with Hank Aaron, this one took a crazy turn to have it become a little bit more than just that fan relationship. I was asked to host a book signing of Cal's in 1997 when the Orioles were in town to play the Braves. We would spend some time on the air before the event would begin. Well, that Saturday afternoon game won 12 innings, and I wasn't sure with a long line already at the Marietta, Georgia, Barnes & Noble store and a start time that was pushed back because of the length of the game if Cal would still be able to do it. He did because he said he would, and that will tell you everything you need to know about the man away from the field. Oh, and he signed about 2,000 books that night, and with every signature, not only looked up to thank the person for coming out to be a part of it, but made the eye contact or offered up the handshake that let you know he meant it. And in case you're wondering, his philanthropic work is beyond exemplary. He actually just joined Twitter a couple of weeks ago to pivot some of his charitable work of his foundation in these times with not surprisingly an eye towards children in need during this pandemic. He will tell you how you can help in this conversation. I want to thank a gentleman by the name of John Maroon, who worked for the Orioles and handled Cal's crazy schedule in 1995 and still does to this day, who never forgot how well that book signing night went. Since then, both he and Cal have gone out of their way to put us back together every so often. So I hope whether you're on a walk or a run or driving in your car, just sitting on a front or back porch waiting for the game to come back, you look forward to hearing Cal talk about everything from that World Series, his only, to the streak, to how his career led him to the back porch of a hotel in Cooperstown, and which Hall of Famer made sure he took a moment to take it all in. And there's a whole bunch more on top of that, both on and off the field conversations. Ladies and gentlemen, Cal Ripken Jr. At the time, I was going through a period where everybody was trying to give me advice because I was struggling, and Reggie just came up and said, look, I know what you're going through. Go out there and be yourself. They know you can play. Everybody in the stands knows you can play. Go up there and do what you can do. Be yourself. And uh, that seemed to be the right thing at the right time. The 72nd All-Star game. The 19-time All-Star deserves to go out and play this first inning as the shortstop. I think he just said to Roger Clemens, strike him out. Don't have him hit it up the middle. The man of a thousand stances leads off. Rips one. joins us today on an episode of Hardball Podcast. If I would have told the 22-year-old version of you that 1983 was going to be the only World Series you played in, what would you have told me? <laughs> well, first, I'd have been happy that I was in one. But uh, I thought, and I did think uh, after the start of my career, that we were a really good team, that we were going to experience that you know, uh, many, many more times. And uh, so I would have thought, you're ridiculous. Um, and now having gone through it, I am thankful that uh, there are many players, many great players that have played this game and never experienced one World Series championship. So I feel honored and, uh, and glad that I know what that feels like. But I am envious of the likes of Derek Jeter and uh, Chipper Jones, where their, their uh, definition of a bad year is uh, losing in the first round of the playoffs. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to play in the playoffs in the worst way. The reason you play the game is to get to the postseason. You know, there's a a long season and it uh, defines who you are as a team but then the playoffs uh you know is the is the real excitement and uh i got a chance to experience it again 96 and 97 we had really good teams 
and that was fun. And I performed really well in those. But, man, would I love to get back to the World Series stage. Yeah, you know what's crazy? Because I know the respect you have for the game, not only in your upbringing, but personal respect for the game. But I don't think it's out of line, even respecting the game at 22. Dan Marino was the guy that everybody talks about the most. He said it out loud. Oh, hell yeah, I'm going to be back to the Super Bowl thing. Yeah, this one didn't go well, but I'm going to be back. You won it, so you do walk away with that part of it as well. But you had to wait 13 seasons to get back to the postseason. Yeah, and some uh, many ups and downs and rebuilding processes, mm-hmm. which some some are necessary, but they're not fun to go through. The easiest and the most fun season that you have is uh, playing on a winner. Whereas each and every day, um, the focus is right where it should be. What can I do to help us win today? Um, and it might be turning a double play in the eighth inning. It might not have anything to do with your bat. Um, or you know, you might be in a slump, but you can still bring an intangible value to win that game. Those seasons fly by. When, you, uh, when you're rebuilding and then you're losing and getting beat down and you're constantly rearranging your team goals, um, sometimes you're looking at your individual accomplishments. It's just... It's not the way you should approach the game, and it's uh, it makes for a long, long season. That that season where we started out 0 and 21, oh. the season was over in the first month. Yeah, and uh, to get to the finish line, now there's a lot of learning that takes place in uh, when you have those uh, situations and, and when you fail and when things don't go right. And in many ways, for my life standpoint, I'm thankful that I I knew figured out how I can endure that and I could be a better teammate. But, man, I, I, I would have wished that uh, we won 14 straight division titles or, uh, you know, have uh, Derek Jeter be in the World Series. And it does make you realize no matter how good of a player you are individually, you know, uh, um, one person can't carry uh, a team in baseball to the championship. Um, you know, uh, and it, it, it's really uh, interesting. No matter if you have Barry Bonds' numbers that you're putting up there, it's the uh, the rest of the team that went in a way to play together, um, all nine of uh, you on a regular basis that would uh, would get you there. Um, not to mention the uh, the starting staff, which is probably the most important. Have you ever thought about the? I think you might have the craziest transition when it comes to parks, home parks that you played in. Memorial in the middle of a of a neighborhood. Now I think you actually had the last at bat at Memorial as well. But then to Camden Yards. I don't know if anybody's really transitioned from. This is old school baseball. I mean, if if people don't know Memorial, you're walking by houses to get to the ballpark. And then Camden becomes the first of the, oh, my God, we can build them like this. You did that all basically in one year going from one to the other. Yeah, I mean, I tell you what, uh, I feel lucky uh, when I look back on it. I had 10-plus years in Memorial and 10-plus years in uh, Camden Yards which, uh, you know, right almost halfway in my career, I didn't really realize that at the time, but it was almost split in half. And because I was an Oriole fan, because I was so ingrained in uh, um, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Book Powell, Jim Palmer, Paul Blair, Don Buford, and those guys, you know, you watch them, and they were in the playoffs uh, uh, in the World Series uh, almost every year at that time when I was a kid. When I finally got to the big leagues, I made my debut as a third baseman. And I stood on the same hallowed ground where Brooksy made all those plays and all that kind of stuff. And it felt really good to be out there. So my first instinct was, why can't we just fix this place? <laughs> and uh, But then when I walked into Camden Yards for the first time, I forgot totally about Memorial Stadium because they had accomplished something that, uh, you know, um, everybody else has tried to duplicate is that they've captured an old school baseball park feeling into the brand new modern uh, uh, entertainment of baseball. 
And for 10 or 12 years, I mean, uh, that place was packed. Uh, exciting, uh, exciting baseball that was being played. It, uh, it, it was just, it felt like baseball had been played there for years before we even broke it in. And as you said, the, then the dash was, how do I figure out how to finance it? And I want it to look like that. I want it to have a feel like that. And Camden really is the original of the new age ballpark. It's the first one. It's, it's Project X. Yeah, I remember Comiskey Park was the year before the old Comiskey turned into the new Comiskey. And uh, they kind of went with concrete and, uh, you know, high. It, it just felt a little too sterile, I think. It didn't feel uh, warm. Um, and I think when we were looking at that, um, we were wondering how ours would turn out. I think we got a little lucky because they had this uh, this gigantic warehouse that was there that I think originally they were going to knock to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then somebody had the idea of building around it, which I think really made it. Uh, it gave the old with the new fixing that up, up that place. And it gave the uh, stadium a feeling of intimacy. You know, everybody that goes into Camden Yard says, oh, what a band box. But playing there, the ball doesn't travel you know, any better than uh, other ballparks. And we, we were built, uh, our offense was built around home runs. But as the visiting teams, I think we were in the middle of the pack when they came in as far as hitting home runs. Um, but the reason it feels intimate is because the enormity of that um, warehouse, it makes it feel like we're all, you know, close to together. And the steel and the brick and all that kind of stuff. They just did a fantastic job with our ballpark. Can I ask you to do a comparison between two things? You're a young guy, again, probably 22 years old, and you walk into an all-star clubhouse for the first time. And then there's that feeling of, look at everybody in this room. And then years later, after the career is done, five years on top of that, you walk to the Hall of Fame and that Hall of Fame dinner. Um, I, I don't know if at 22 you thought, what am I doing here? I don't deserve this. And I don't know what you thought about the first night you were at that Hall of Fame dinner. But it really is crazy. I'm assuming you have two events that many years apart where you're sort of wide-eyed. I, I, I don't care what anybody says. Whatever your numbers are, waltzing into the Hall of Fame, you must walk into that dinner the same way sort of that you walk into the All-Star Clubhouse for the first time thinking, how the hell did this happen? Well, that's two good moments that you picked out, and there are uh, there is an analogy to those uh, feelings that you have, uh, or a comparison to the two. Um, I remember the All Star Game. My first uh, year, I came up in '82. I got off to a, such a slow start. I was seven for my first 68 after going three for five opening day, and uh, then I started to get it. And uh, and but I didn't get it quick enough to be recognized in the All Star Game. Although I was playing pretty well at the time. Um, and then I uh, finished really strong, and I was voted the rookie of the year. So I had 28 bombs and uh, almost 100 RBIs. And uh, um, the next year, Robin Yount was the MVP of the year before, and then he was the leading boat getter at shortstop. But I earned a, uh, a position as a reserve on that. Uh, and it was the 50th anniversary of the All-Star Game where the National League um, beat up on the American League for years. Um, but in that particular game, Freddie Lynn hit a grand slam. We blew out the National League. I got a chance to come in for Robin about the fifth inning. But going back to the initial feel when you walk into that clubhouse, I mean, there were guys that were around there that I watched when I was a kid. And uh, all of a sudden, you're teammates with them. And then you walk in with a little hesitancy, and you are wide-eyed. Um, and, and you don't really uh, look at yourself and do I deserve to be here or not. You're happy and proud for that. But you just want to listen. You just want to keep your mouth shut and just uh, listen and maybe ask a question or two uh, so you can keep them going. But it was, uh, it, was a, it was a weird, surreal sort of experience. Now, 
years later, I had the experience of being at the All-Star Game many times and watching the first uh, year of somebody coming in, mm-hmm. like a new a new breed coming in. And I got to relive it all over again. But when you go to the Hall of Fame, all of a sudden the great the greatest of greats are there. And uh, the special part of that uh, day, um, we all see the induction ceremony. We all listen to the to the speeches, and people generally cry because they uh, um, they remember all the people that were instrumental in getting there. But when you go to the dinner, it's just the Hall of Famers, you know, just them, and it's a uh, it's a welcoming of sorts. Now over the years, sometimes they yell and scream at the new new people, but I, I'm of the opinion. Instead of giving them a hard time and treating them like a rookie, that uh, you uh, you use that time to welcome them. Um, after all, you're you're a grown man who's played 20 some years mm-hmm. in the big leagues. At that point, um, I think the, I've been part of a, a number of them where, like I'll give you an example. Johnny Bench um, has this thing where he sits out on the uh, rocking chairs and he sits you down next to him and he says, "Just sit back and rock here and look out over the lake." And he goes. And people have been pulling at you, you know, for a long time now. Just think it's how cool it is to be part of this and be here. And uh, I thought that was the coolest thing. And Johnny got away from that for a couple a couple of years. But uh, the last few years, we got him back doing it again. So it's, it's a wonderful uh, um, uh, acceptance into the uh, Hall of Fame. But you're right. You feel – I guess there are a few experiences you feel in your life where it almost seems like it's not happening to you. You're watching it. But it is really happening to you, and uh, the ones that you picked out were two very good ones. Do you know what's e- even better about the Hall of Fame? Look, I-, I guess you could put a Hall of Fame in Chicago or New York. The Baseball Hall of Fame could have been there, but it's never going to. It would not be the same. The same field. That hotel for people who don't know that back porch that you're talking about, uh, that whole area. I think the other part that you probably take in at that point is how long it had been going on in that same place like this isn't a traveling road show this is where you talked about playing third base and you're on the dirt that basically brooks robinson was on well same thing at the hall of fame you're wandering around a hotel that has been around for even the guys who had passed on had spent part of their weekend in yeah it's, uh, and here's a here's a, since we're into comparisons um when they announced the all-century team in 1999 at the all-star game uh, i was part of that and they brought all the players back uh, I think Kevin Costner was the one that mm-hmm. was announcing the uh, names. And we're all standing at each position. But the really cool part about that was, um, and Ted Williams was uh, stole the show, I think, when uh, when he came out. But the cool part for me was we looked around and we felt like, or at least I felt, that we all had this stadium in common. You know, it's been around for a long time. It's, uh, you know, people played, went through there and played through there. And no matter what time that you played, when you look, uh, look what area you played in, you had played in Fenway Park, mm-hmm. or at least it seemed that way. So when you go to the Hall of Fame, I used to love the uh, Hall of Fame game where they brought two teams in to play uh, as an exhibition game, you know, during the time of the indu- inductions. And we were there for Brooks Robinson induction uh, as part of the Orioles. And for me personally, that was really cool. So there is a special, magical um, uh, atmosphere that takes place there. And you're right. Um, it's been there for a while you know that the people before you have gone through the same thing that you've gone through, and they sat in that same dining room and uh, and welcomed the new group in. So uh, it's a cool place. Do you, do you know what's interesting? I was at that All-Star game in 99, and the whole idea that everybody there from the All-Century, it hadn't been voted on yet. It was just a collection of the names that were on the list. Uh, Tony Gwynn, who, again, 
it, honestly, just in terms of could not have treated me better over the years. Similar to you, you've always really been respectful. I hope I've been respectful of your time, but I've always enjoyed speaking to a, a small handful of guys more than others. The funny thing when I talked to Tony about that night is he was right there with Ted when Ted throws a strike. Now, Ted couldn't even see. And and yep. Tony, Tony Gwynn doesn't work blue, but Tony told me in his words, we're on a podcast so I could say it. I'll bleep it out later. But but he said, throw it. You're fucking Ted Williams. And, and that's what Ted Williams will do. And it was so amazing to hear Tony sort of just get so excited about that moment after being Tony Gwynn for all the years that he was. And I'd imagine the energy on the field had to be that way no matter what what age you were and what your career had been to get to that point to be a possibility of being on the all-century team. So, so I witnessed that. I was close enough to hear all that. Um, and I was standing right next to him as well um, uh, during that time frame. But the thing that I remember was that Tony and Ted broke out in a conversation, which has happened before about uh, you ever foul a ball off and you could, you could smell the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the wood burning. And, and you could see Tony and Ted um, amongst all this celebration, like start to form this, um, this small little uh, conversation that, that they were just into and nobody else was into it. So I remember thinking these two guys really love to talk about hitting. And uh, even with all the stuff that's going on around them, um, they could have tunnel vision and, and be totally happy talking to each other. I know that you're not supposed to ask about teammates or guys in the league because it's kind of like your children. Don't, don't ask for the favorite. But did you have a guy that you bonded with, uh, an elder statesman of the game that you had, maybe other than Brooks, I'm assuming, was there a relationship with anybody else in that, in that way? You know, um, because we just, uh, um, ESPN just aired the 21-31 game, and this is the 25th anniversary, mm-hmm. um, I sat down and watched it from the beginning of the broadcast to the end for the first time ever. You know, I'd seen some ver- some parts of the uh, of the game, you know, just by channel surfing and, and checking it out over the years. But I never sat down and watched it from the from the beginning to the end. And I remember that uh, two baseball royalty guys were there: uh, Joe DiMaggio and Hank Aaron. And again, when you go to the Hall of Fame, there are certain times when you can sit down and talk to people. But I've always I've, I had a personal experience with Joe D in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in the old Yankee complex, which the Orioles took over, there was a fundraiser down there. And we were waiting in the cl- in the clubhouse where we dressed. And we were on two stools just sitting down talking. And uh, I thought that was a really cool thing. I didn't get a chance to talk to him a lot during the 21-31 celebration. I got a chance to say hi to him. But uh, I had a number of occasions where I, I could sit down and just talk baseball with him. And I really liked that. Um, Hank Aaron uh, always lifts me up. He's laughing, uh, happy, um, and uh, and just, uh, you know, seeing the, the things that he accomplished for a long time in, in the sport. Uh, uh, he's one of my favorites as well. Um, as a teammate goes, you know, Eddie Murray was, uh, was probably a lot more of an influence in me being an everyday player than, uh, than people know. My dad always uh, thought it was uh, honorable to to be counted on by your teammates to play every day, and the definition of an everyday player was every day. But the example that was right in front of me, and people don't really realize this, uh, Eddie probably averaged 160 games a year for like 10 years. Um, I know he had a streak, couple streaks of his own where he, where he uh, ran into the 400s, um, but he was the guy that went out there um, and really explained to me the some of the intangibles that you bring just by being in the lineup. I always thought that if Eddie's in the lineup hitting fourth, the rest of us can relax. Uh, even if he's 0 for 29, 
you know, the manager still has to make a decision, you know, in the sixth inning about what to do. And he impacts the game just by his presence. So uh, uh, Eddie was, uh, was someone that took me under his wing and kind of guided me to get me off on the right foot. You know what's interesting? You've told me about Eddie before, but I've never brought this up. But Eddie's reputation was not easy to get along with in the media, or he just chose not to, I don't know if it was offered up. or. But is it interesting to you that that was sort of his reputation outside that, that building, but his reputation, at least with you personally, was the exact opposite of that? Well, most people that know know Eddie, I mean, anybody that knows Eddie uh, really well um, would say that he has the biggest heart of anybody that they know. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. I know that he got burned in the 79 World Series. Uh, there was some uh, article uh, written that he thought was uh, was out of bounds, I think. And I think he developed that sort of uh, lack of trust for the media from that point forward. But I will tell you, he was misunderstood in many ways. And I'll give you one quick story and example. Mike Boddicker pitches a uh, uh, eight innings of shutout ball. Eddie Murray gets a single to left field to drive in uh, the run, and we end up winning one one to nothing. But he drove this, the run in in the first inning. So when the media was let in the clubhouse afterwards, um, they'll see Eddie sitting over there by his locker, and a lot of them will start to beeline right towards Eddie. And then Eddie, I saw him because the first time I didn't understand it, but I've seen it a couple of times. He would point to them, you know, and not in a real nice way, and point to Boddicker and say, the story's over there. Now, see, they all took it as a negative that uh, he didn't want to be bothered with them or he was, uh, um, you know, leave me alone sort of thing. But what he was saying when you know him is that Mike Boddicker deserves you to go talk to him first because he did all the work. I just got a single with no pressure and drove in the run, and it turned out to be the one nothing victory. So unless you really know Eddie and you get to see that, he doesn't take time to explain that. He just points over there, and then it, he might have a comment or two after it's all over, but uh, he's not the focus of it. And so that, that story is worth telling, um, and it could really uh, help people understand uh, how Eddie ticked. So the the relationship with teammates, is it a natural – because, I, I, look, this many years later you're not playing and you are busy. Like you, you might be busier now than when you actually played and you had a schedule that I get to the ballpark at this time and I have a routine. You're probably getting pulled in a few different places because of the work that you're doing now outside the game. But how organic is a relationship supposed to happen? Look, Bobby Cox, we said it all the time, he had two rules. Be on time and respect the uniform. And then I'm going to leave the clubhouse to players. I don't want to be in there. If I'm in there, it's a bad sign. Do, do you, with many years under your belt, the relationship thing, is that an organic thing? Do you walk up and sort of, if, if you're Cal Ripken in your eighth year, do you walk up to a guy and introduce yourself as if he didn't know who you were to find out or get a little bit of a feel for people? Or do you sit back a little bit more and then try to figure out what the relationship is going to be a little bit more organically? Um, God, uh, I never pushed myself uh, on anyone or gave myself any more weight uh, than I should have. So I, I think I let things develop organically. I'm a firm believer that uh, you respect the game and you approach the game right. And there was a, a certain amount of respect that you got naturally about how you did it, which then would offer you opportunities to talk and do all that kind of stuff. But uh, I never pushed those sort of things. I just let them happen. And I, I was really, really lucky to um, – I think I was in 19 All-Star games. You know, and uh, once you've been in an All-Star locker room um, and you uh, you get used to it because, again, as we mentioned, it uh, was hard early, uh, you know, when you go in there. But once you get in there, you're teammates with the best players in the league. 
and your teammates for a few days, three days. And so you get a chance to talk to them. And then the more you're there, the more you get to know a Jim Rice uh, or even in the early days, Cecil Cooper, you know, coming in. You uh, They were leading the league at home runs and RBIs at the break. They were getting on each other and – and you become part of that conversation. Or when I think about it, I really look forward to talking to Don Mattingly. Don Mattingly thought about the game. He was looking at the game all the time, and I thought that we thought about the game similarly, so I couldn't wait to discuss a situation with him or ask him a question or something. Um, so I think I, w- I was um, lucky enough to, to be in those environments where things could develop. And you do, you do uh, build, your, build on those relationships at the Hall of Fame, too. Uh, I always liked Ozzy Smith, but I really like Ozzy Smith now. <laughs> um, I just think he's a he's a class guy. He's a he, he's a good person, and uh, I always look forward to spending time with him at the uh, Hall of Fame. So, uh, you know, when you do all when you all work and do the same thing, and you all have a love of the game, some of those relationships just just are bound to happen. How much do you miss it? You know, when I talk about it like this, I miss it a lot. <laughs> But uh, as far as playing, a lot of people say, do you miss playing? And I'm thinking, well, I put my heart and soul into it and uh, played uh, a little over 3,000 games, uh, almost all of them in a row. And uh, I, I, feel, I know what it feels like to fail and succeed uh, everywhere in between. And so I think if, if, um, if, if, I gotta, if there's anyone that got a, a miles out of their tank, it might be me. And you realize you can't play forever. You know, towards the end of your career, it was it was harder just to get on the field for all the things you had to do in the offseason and, and do before the game just to be out there on the field. Um, and there's a natural time to say goodbye. And I was lucky enough where I could do it on my own. Um, so I don't miss playing, but you do. Miss, I do miss the things that we complained about, uh, the travel, <laughs> the hotels, being on the back of the plane, um, rain delays. How about rain delays? Rain delays, uh, what they represent to me was sometimes sitting on the bench, having conversations with people watching the rain or your teammates or figuring out games inside to pass your time. It was uh, times when when uh, we were forced together, and uh, th- those are good memories. They're, those are good times. It's funny because I, I did word it specifically, the one word, it how, it. how much do you miss it? Because I do know the difference between the nine innings and it. It is a much it's a much bigger picture. Like, it is everything. It is that time with the teammates. Let me ask you, I, I don't know, and this is not a knock on today's player, and, and somebody asked me, what's the biggest difference? I've been covering it 26 years. I said, I don't think I'll ever have a beer in a locker room with a player again, and I used to, and it used to be pull up a chair, or I'd be 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sitting with Glenn Hubbard or Bobby Cox in his little weather room. That stuff doesn't really happen anymore. It's like... It's what I miss. I miss the conversations about the game, and I, I miss the, game, the conversations that would tentacle off into something else about the history of the game. It, it's not an environment that's really conducive to that much anymore. Yeah, you know, I was there to witness uh, there was a relationship between the players and the media and the teams and the media um, early on in my career that um, it was almost like it was a partnership, not in a partnership where – you would always say good things about it. You, you had to report the good and the bad. Um, but there was relationships built with media guys where um, you gave context so that they could get they could get the full story. And so uh, off the record was kind of background. Mm-hmm. And there was a trust that was developed within uh, in the era of competition and scoops and all that kind of stuff. And nothing's off limits that are said or done in the clubhouse anymore. You know, I think all those those trusting relationships, it's uh, they're all it's all a risk. 
So um, there is something to be said about, you know, the people that covered the uh, um, the sport on a daily basis on, uh, on the grind. They understand the grind, <laughs> and uh, they're grinding right along with uh, all the players. And so we all had that in common. And it is kind of sad that that uh, you know that goes away. Um, you know, I, I do remember too that. Early on, and this, you know, you hear stories about the uh, press traveling with the Yankees or Babe Ruth on a train and some of the things that happened, but they were trusted not to report on any of those things. It was about what was happening on the field. Now, I guess some of the stories have come out years and years later, but the same is true is that um, uh, what happens on the plane, what happens in the clubhouse and all that kind of stuff, sometimes as families do, they argue and bicker and something happens. Uh, that was always off limits. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so then people started traveling separately. And, and you know, some of the core people that uh, love the game, uh, you know, all of a sudden weren't, weren't together anymore. It was just it was more of a separate relationship. And and I don't know whether the game became uh, more entertainment or the, the players' lives off the field became more entertainment. I'm not sure. But uh, I agree with you is that uh, there were some good times early on where you could sit and just discuss the game and understand things. And it's why I think the oral history, look, more words have been written about baseball than every other sport combined. That's a fact. It's not even debatable. With newspapers and, and daily five papers here and somebody writing, more words written about baseball than every other sport combined. But the oral history, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing this stuff and why I think it's necessary. That Eddie Murray story you told needs to be or should be out there. And I, I think if we don't respect the oral history, uh, Al Kaline's passing. I just spoke to him a couple of months ago, and I, and I get saddened by it. I mean, I'm I'm actually saddened. I didn't have a relationship other than a baseball friendship, as I said, but I'm saddened by those things, and I worry all the time that people like that and people like you, quite honestly, haven't told enough of their story or the big – not their story, the big picture story of the game. I, you, we should be just trying to grab as much of this stuff as possible. It, it is cool. It is a storytelling sport that passes down over time. Uh, being at the Hall of Fame, when you get some people going – Sometimes it's really fun, and you all have a different uh, take on it, which is uh, which is really interesting. You, you made me think of something a minute ago, and I just forgot it. Um, playing the game, telling the stories. Um, maybe I'll remember here. In well, a second. was it was it maybe about Mr. Kaline? Because there's a mortality. Oh, yeah, yeah. That comes it was about Al. Yeah. So uh, um, I tweeted one of my early tweets. I uh, retweeted and put my own comment in. And it was basically that uh, when I went to Detroit, you know, some of the things that were, that were fun to look forward to, I mean, Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker for me personally, you know, was good. I used to like to watch Alan Trammell play, period. Uh, but just competing with them in Yankee Stadium, there was, uh, it was a good rivalry and it was fun. Um, but over the years, you go, and, but you hit your head on the dugout in the old stadium a zillion times, and the clubhouse wasn't the best place to hang out in and all that kind of stuff. So there were some negatives that you could focus on. But I always remember when I got to Detroit, I was happy, and I got to the ballpark early so I could say hello, go say hello to Al Kaline. I just thought he was cool, and uh, there was nothing special. I had to keep, update him or anything else. It was just I, I became uplifted thinking, okay, I'm in Detroit. You know, and I wasn't someone that got to the ballpark way, way early. Um, I, I wanted to have my time away from the ballpark as well. But in Detroit, 
I always came to the ballpark early, not to hang out in the clubhouse, but to say hi to uh, Kalon. You know what's interesting, too? He's a Baltimore guy, and what I really loved about him, and it came across a few times that I had a chance to speak with him, he comes from the humblest of humble beginnings. I mean, father was a broom maker, and... You know, getting to the ballpark was a few uncles' responsibility to get him to a field that was not close to his house, but so he can go play baseball games. But his humility, like coming from that background, it really, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated. Everybody has a story, and everybody has a story of how they got to the major leagues. But when I hear about a guy like this, and then this many years later, at 80-plus years old, still having the humility intact, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. Well, I mean, uh, you see other sports, uh, people jump right from uh, high school or college uh, to the big leagues, but baseball doesn't happen. Right. But it happened for him. It happened for him. Um, and, uh, and thinking about that, I, I was drafted out of high school at 17. And as green as I was in rookie ball, I made 32 errors and was scared to death. <laughs> and I did, was lucky enough to get to the big leagues before my 21st birthday by a month. Um, but I had played um, – parts of four seasons mm-hmm. in the minor leagues and two uh, stints in winter ball. <laughs> but, and, uh, so and this guy walked off a high school. Yeah, he walked off to a high school field to go play with the men. Yep, for sure. Hey, is this but true? He, did, did you not hit a home run in your rookie ball season? Uh, in uh, Bluefield, I, I went 60-some games without a homer, yeah. What do you think? I mean, I mean <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the irony was, I mean, I'm a 6'2", 180, 180-pound guy. I grew almost three inches and gained, you know, 40 pounds, you know, uh, you know, like about five or eight pounds a year. I was, I was still growing. So I had a good growth spurt between 18 and 21. And uh, um, I had the capability to hit the ball at the ballpark. The, the weird part about Bluefield, West Virginia, was it was 365 to center, I think 345 in a gap, 330 down the lines, I think, if I remember correctly. And so it was a small ballpark, and you, you looked at it and thought, you know, I could hit home runs here. And in our first exhibition game, maybe in my first at bat, I hit a ball out of left field that went through the light tower. <laughs> and it was, it was a home run that didn't count for anything except uh, it was an uh, exhibition or a, a scrimmage. And uh, having gone through the rest of the season without a home run, I hit maybe three or four balls that hit the top of the wall and came back, you know, uh, that, uh, that I thought were home runs. But the funny part about that is, when you when you go from high school to face guys that throw real hard, most hitters, most young hitters, feel you know it's speeding up to them that they got to go speed out mm-hmm. and cheat to get the ball. And when they do that, you lose all the power. You want to. The opposite is true: is that you want to actually load or coil or stay back a little longer and then bring everything together at once. And if you have the ability to do it, then all of a sudden your your power comes together. And it didn't happen until uh, I didn't hit a home run halfway through my Miami season either. And then once uh, once I hit a home run, I think I hit uh, five real quick in that uh, month, got sent up to double A. I hit three home runs in double A. So I ended up with eight home runs in, in a short short period of time there. And then my next year was a breakout year. I hit 25 in double A and, and moved very quickly then. I, I don't know if this is official. I'm assuming nobody who's ever played the game, let alone became a Hall of Famer, had their hands in more different positions over the course, hell, over the course of a game. I mean, I remember watching games where I go, well, all right, no, that's different. Oh, that 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 next at bat, that's a little bit different. I know the plane, and I know where you wanted to end up was always the same. But boy, it, it is strange to think about the career you had because that sort of is the thing. 
for guys who grasp a little bit. But but I, I'm not kidding, right? Tell everybody, you would actually maybe change your hands over the course of four at-bats in a game. Well, I think uh, well, here's the philosophy is that uh, a stance, because uh, my stance were, was different, and maybe where you hold your hands is different in the stance. So it's open, closed, wide, straight up, extremely closed, uh, put your bat on your shoulder, put your bat really high, <laughs> uh, wrap your bat, lay your bat back, you know, you name it, I tried it. Now, I was a hitter that hit on feel, and uh, I was pretty mechanically sound, uh, you know, coming up learning how to hit. But once you do it for a while um, and things aren't working in BP, you end up trying something. Like, for example, if you're, uh, you have a bad habit of flying your shoulder for some reason, maybe you're a little anxious and you're going out early. So you stride out early and you fly your front shoulder. The counter to that would be, let me close my front shoulder longer. And so then you'd find out in batting practice, if I closed my front shoulder longer and stayed in, then all of a sudden those line drives were coming off your bat really hard. And you go, I don't know why this worked, but I was just trying to keep my front shoulder in and that happened. The same as if you're lunging out there and you're fooled on off speed pitches, you can widen your stance out a little bit to give yourself more of a base. And then all of a sudden you give yourself a chance to hit it. You're still hitting the same way as you always hit. But your starting point was different. And I don't know whether this story was uh, was one of the reasons, but I played against Carl Yastrzemski. And a lot of people find that interesting because his career kind of wound down. Mm-hmm. Maybe we crossed over by two seasons, maybe. I can't remember. His, his last year might have been 83 or 84 um, um, or maybe even 82. But I think we crossed over for two seasons. And at the end, he had 285 or something and uh, still had a lot of sock in his bat. But he uh, he had this unorthodox leaning up on his front leg and putting all the weight on his front foot first. And I had a chance to ask him about that. And he said, uh, he said, I just can't. He says, when you get older, someday when you get older, you find out that you can't stop yourself from going forward. And he said, so in order to stop myself from going forward, I put all my weight on my front foot, which makes me transfer it to the backside first, and I come forward. And he was raking against us. And uh, so I just thought he's making certain adjustments, and I always put that in the back of my mind. Um, and so I watched other hitters. I learned uh, what they did, talked about them. And sometimes I tried to apply it to my talent. And uh, by and large, I couldn't explain why it works sometimes, but it worked. Yeah, let me, let's finish up with this. I appreciate your time, and then we will mention the foundation again and what it is you guys are doing. When you watch that game, and it is interesting to me, you never watched the 21-31 game at all. And by the way, 22-23 minutes, I think, was the final tally in terms of a couple of curtain calls and then the lap around the stadium. But when you see yourself, look, Father Time wins. Nobody beats Father Time. When you see yourself in 95, and you see yourself maybe even earlier than that, um, do you... Do you? I don't know. It's great for three hours as you're watching that. Do you feel young again? Is there a your knees don't quite hurt as much? Uh, you're not fidgeting in the chair to get comfortable. I kept thinking, man, I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah. You know, uh, watching and moving around, and uh, at the shortstop, I was 30, turning 30. What was that? 95. I was 35, turning 35 that uh, summer. And for a 35 year old guy that already had 15 years in the big leagues or 16 years, whatever it was, um, I thought I was moving pretty good. And it does make you go back. Also, it makes you think like that was another lifetime ago. Too. Right. Uh, 25 years ago was a long time. Um, Chris Berman was young, as I said. Uh, 
Buck Martinez was really young listening to those guys. Uh, it was pretty interesting. But, yeah, for, for a brief moment, um, I got to go back in and feel uh, feel like I was young again. Do you, do you ever dream? I, I've asked a bunch of guys this, and I started with Phil Rizzuto many years ago, and I don't know why. We were just having a conversation where I could hear, and I, I know what it was. We had actually had a, the unfortunate conversation, and it was the same with Duke Snyder. Most of their teammates had passed. Now, you're not, thank God, in that stage of life. But I could hear in his voice that what he really missed, and I, and I asked him, it's the ability to pick up a phone to talk to somebody that you had spent that many hours with and that many good moments and not-so-good moments with. Uh, but, but it led to asking him if he ever dreamt about being young and playing the game. It is a fair question, I think, for you this many years later. Have you ever had those dreams where you're, I, I mean, I'm playing. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the clock says right now, but I'm playing a baseball game right now. Have you ever experienced that? Um. I would say no, is that uh, whether I'm satisfied or whether I was content with uh, what I was able to accomplish, um, I can look back on it and say, you know, I gave it everything I had. You know, maybe I'm the one person that says, maybe if I took a few days off, I would have done better. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I enjoyed being uh, in the game, and I, I enjoyed uh, every aspect of it. I will say having a dad being in the sport and then uh, helping me and then having my son now who's uh, played in double A last year with the Orioles. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of lived through him a little bit, you know, uh, get a chance to watch him, um, ask him what he's thinking after he hit the home run on the first pitch. And then he takes a, a breaking ball down the middle and the second time up, <laughs> I'll say, what were you thinking? What were you looking for? Mm-hmm. So it kind of gets you back into that uh, mindset that, uh, that I had lived all those years. So in some ways I'm living through, watching Ryan at the uh, minor league level, um, being around some of the young minor league players and uh, and talking to them, that makes me feel good. Um, but I don't think I've ever had a dream that I could be young again and go back to play. How difficult is it to have the last name Ripken when you're playing professional baseball? Uh, it wasn't so bad for me. My dad had the name. Um, and sometimes people would think, well, the only reason he's there is because his dad got him into the organization. Um, and then you quickly change that when you lead the team in hitting. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so that's all in your power. Um, I often wonder, my son, having uh, the expectation with the last name, um, the burden of that sometimes I thought was unfair. You know, they uh, and when he was in Little League or 11 playing up, you know, we'd be at a tournament and all the teams would come over and go, okay, which one is he? You know, and then they'd watch him for a second, and he'd pop up or something. And go, oh, he ain't that good, and they'd walk away. Mm-hmm. So there, there was this pressure always to, for Ryan uh, all, to do well all the time, and I was allowed to make mistakes and learn. Uh, I don't know that what the expectation for him was much higher. But he's a big kid. He's six six. He's two forty five. He's got a lot of natural talent. Um, hits the ball really hard. Uh, big, tall, lanky first baseman. Uh, and so he's got a lot of skills uh, of his own. And um, last year, he really came into it himself. So, so he's, he's 26 now, so he's a little old um, in his development. Uh, but he's still got a shot, and he's still trying to fulfill a dream. Do you know what's crazy about that size? I, I talk about seeing Cliff Floyd in West Palm Beach in 1994, and Cliff Floyd was a monster. There are 10, yes, Cliff, Floyds, there are 10 Cliff Floyds walking around every clubhouse right now. Yeah. They're all big. They're all huge. That's a good point. And Cliff, Cliff Floyd, if I remember right, uh, had all the talent in the world, but he seemed a little raw, you know? Uh, he seemed a little raw, and then all of a sudden he refined himself and he became a really good player. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it was just the size. I just remember being there in the beginning, and the Braves shared that facility with Montreal, and I was like, that, that guy's just different. And now you look around and you go, oh, God, they're all that. <laughs> it's just a different world. So you remember um, – um, West Palm Beach, that uh, ballpark with the Braves. Uh, I, uh, sh- I sure do. I'll tell you the other difference. I told this story the other day. You basically stepped over a chain link fence and you were in there compared to what, what spring training parks look like now with real entrances and everything else. I just remember parking a car, you'd step over a chain link fence, and, and 12 steps away you were in a clubhouse. So that ballpark there in the Florida State League was the site of my first uh, professional homer. No way. 12th inning to break a 0-0 tie off a pitcher, um, the Expos, named Joey Abone. Um, I, I had a line drive uh, bullet that went out, and uh, in, the, in the bottom half of that inning, a transformer blew, and we had a delay, and I'm thinking that they were going to uh, take, take my homer yeah. off the board. <laughs> but nope. somehow the light came back on, and we were able to finish the game. But it, we, it broke a 0-0 tie in the 12th inning, and Joey Abone, I think, pitched all 12 innings. Well, that's different, too. They don't do that anymore either in the game. You know what's crazy about that? I don't know. I think the greatest tradition in baseball, seriously, at the big league level, is the silent treatment on a guy's first home run. Now, I don't know if you got the silent treatment because anybody was aware that it was your first home run in the minor leagues, but you probably experienced a lot of that. When you play enough, you probably experienced a whole lot of nobody's going to pay attention to the guy. Nobody's. I've always thought that it's one of the great sight gags uh, in any sport, but I think it's one of the great traditions in all of baseball. Well, it's interesting. Is uh, and this is probably another um, uh, another day to have another conversation. Um, I was never of the opinion, you know, uh, you know, treating a rookie um, anything different um, than a player. I mean, you're uh, you get to the big leagues and uh, that whole rookie treatment or hazing treatment or making them carry. Well, the you bags, are ahead of your time because that I didn't just, change until very I, recently in the game. I just didn't like it. And one of the greater stories, when I first went in the broadcast booth when the uh, Cardinals were playing, and they had a couple of young guys that were really big difference makers in that whole run, their success. And I remember Carpenter was one of the guys that were there, maybe uh, Adam Wainwright, Mm -hmm. uh, but they were talking about how they dealt with those young pitchers. And that they uh, they were the ones that took them under their wing, took them out to eat. To uh, and the Orioles were like that too. Or if they needed a suit because they didn't have mm-hmm. a suit uh, for a dress code or something, they would take them out and in many cases buy them a suit. And so listening to that sort of support, that's what veterans, in my opinion, should do. And the Orioles were always like that. And then uh, as we went through some changes, the rookie hazing stuff started to come in. Um, and all that kind of stuff. And even we, I talked about a little bit the uh, rookie hazing at the Hall of Fame sometimes with some of the things that yeah. um, has been said over time. I just never understood that. So I just thought the, the role of an experienced guy was to help your teammate um, get his feet on the ground, not make it harder for him. It's, it's so funny. I'm going to tell you the conversation I had with guys like Walt Weiss and even Ron Washington, and then I'll go to a young guy or two, and, and Mike Soroka is one of those guys here, and I think Austin Riley is a young player here that I might have had this conversation with. I said, do you guys understand how much easier you have it in this regard? you got a spotlight on you, no doubt about it. There's more of the world that has an interest in what it is you're doing, and they'll talk about it on social media. A bad day especially but but I was always of the belief that if a guy was going to be one of the 25 who was going to help you win on a Tuesday night in June let alone getting you to October why would you actually take the piss out of a guy 
Like, why would you want him to actually be on eggshells around you? I, I didn't understand it. I mean, I saw some of it just as a media guy. I heard more about it as a media guy, but I never really understood what the mindset was. What was the accomplishment? Like, how big a, how big a man do you need to feel about yourself to actually put a guy down who was not only in the same boat as you, but he's trying to help you win? Why, why would you make him a lesser player? I, I never understood that part. Understood that part of the rookie stuff. Well, I hope, I hope that stuff's gone. I mean, it, it is. Uh, some of the some of the stuff is um, was amusing on a surface level. For example, uh, guys got caught up in September, and they took their uh, clothes, street clothes, out of the locker and put mm-hmm. uh, uh, bad street clothes in it. You know, seventy stuff, platform shoes, tight pants, or whatever else. And the idea was, after the game was over, that was the only thing you could put on, and you had to go through the crowd, through the airport, mm-hmm. uh, to the next hotel in that outfit. And over the years, that sort of uh, uh, blossomed into uh, putting dresses in people's locker and uh, those sorts of things, things that would embarrass someone going through. And I never understood uh, that. I remember seeing Ichiro. Um, he was the MVP of the league and the Seattle's when I guess Seattle won 116 games that year. Yeah, biggest ever. I can't, um, but he came to Baltimore and evidently he was considered a rookie. <laughs> And uh, they they put uh, took the clothes out of all the rookies. There was about five or six of them. We were sitting on the bus because we were both going to different places in Camden Yards. And uh, some players came out with um, Hooters uniforms on, you know, real real short shorts and a white uh, tank top. And I looked around. I saw um, a crowd of uh, photographers around this other guy coming out, and it turned out to be Ichiro. So they did it to Ichiro, too. And Ichiro put it on but they were taking pictures of him because he was his paparazzi he was a he's a rock star Mm -hmm. in japan and i kept thinking to myself sitting on the bus how is that uh bringing him into a team right um that's embarrassing uh number one and it's embarrassing with the pictures going all the way back to japan um that can't be good and uh, so you, you often wonder if he harbored any sort of resentment for being treated that way. And you just don't want – look, guys are going to dumb their way out. Guys are going to drink their way out, you know, some natural ability their way out. I just never really understood why you wouldn't want a guy to feel as good about himself as he could. Look, I'm up for the this is funny, this is go get this, you know, carry the bat bag, do all that. I, I get all that stuff. I just never understood why you'd want to make a guy so uncomfortable he might not be at his optimum when the whole idea of pulling a rope in the same direction was to win as many games as possible. That, that's, that's the way I always looked at it. And by the way, talking to guys like Washington and Walt Weiss and other guys, it really has been eliminated, and it's been a natural elimination because I think even the guys who are 29, 30, 31 years old, I think the mentality is, man, I only get a finite number of shots to, to win, to be a champion. Why would I not want to actually have everybody in as good a place as possible? Yep, for sure. Well, for listen, sure. Let's do, real quick, at Cal Ripken Jr. is the official, by the way, notification, uh, blue check, <laughs> Cal Ripken Twitter site. Welcome, by the way, this past week to Twitter. And tell everybody again one more time, um, you guys have teamed up with a group that knows a lot about whether it's school situations not in play, boys clubs, girls clubs of America not being able to get these, these meals to these kids. Just tell everybody quickly again what they can do to help. Yeah, the, uh, our foundation is, uh, was established to help kids in tough areas all across the country, mostly pro- programmatic and building fields. But during this crisis, uh, we've, we shifted our attention um, temporarily to the needs of these communities, which is food security. And we partnered with uh, Feeding America and uh, many other local food banks 
to provide that those meals uh, for families. And uh, we started off with a good donation from a lot of our um, uh, sponsors, but uh, um, what I think is of real value is, uh, um, and that's why I'm on social media, is to, uh, to ask people, even if they can donate a dollar, $5 or $10, $1 means 10 distributed meals to Feeding America. And so you can have a big effect for $5 or $10. You can uh, affect 100 meals. Um, and so I'm uh, asking uh, people to join the team and, uh, and help out with the need. I'm going to tweet it right now, uh, the fact that you not only join me, but this will be an upcoming episode of the Hardball Podcast, but I will absolutely get the message out. Listen, it's always been a pleasure. Please tell John Maroon I'm glad your family is, is safe and well, and, and I hope we get a chance when all this is over to catch each other down in spring training at some point or perhaps at one of the other events that you're hosting uh, down the road. For sure. I look forward to it. All right, Cal. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Take care. Thank you. Bye. I know some fans have looked at the streak as a special accomplishment. And while I appreciate that, I always looked at it as just showing up for work every day. As I look out on this audience, I see thousands of people who do the same. Teachers, police officers, mothers, fathers, business people, and many others. You all may not receive the accolades that I have throughout my career. So I'd like to take the time out to salute all of you for showing up, working hard, and making the world a better place. Thank you all. Please welcome the Iron Man of Baseball, Cal Ripken. Something magic happens every time you go. You make the magic happen. The magic of Orioles baseball. Cal Ripken supposedly went in to see Ray Miller and said, I'm not injured. Please don't put me in the lineup tonight. And so young Ryan Miner will start at third base. And we apparently will see the end of the Ripken streak. Chris, Cal Ripken Jr. is around this ball club his whole life. His father was a minor league catcher, became a minor league manager, and eventually became a coach and manager right here in Baltimore. And even though the job took his father away from his son, the two had a common bond. That bond was baseball. And it was through this bond that his father was able to give his son a code to live and work by. That code was practice endlessly, work hard, and do the job right. Second hit of the afternoon for the Birds as Cal battled Castillo and picked up that big hit on the ground ball that eluded the diving Shea Hillenbrand. Something magic happened. 